Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. The grass withers, the flowers fade but the word of our God stands forever. Uh, Tim Keller's uh, brother-in-law is named Jim, and Jim always hated wearing seatbelts. But one day as they're in the car together, Jim was wearing a seatbelt, and so Tim asked Jim, why are you wearing a seatbelt? And Jim replied the other week, uh, a buddy of mine wasn't wearing a seatbelt, and he got into a car accident, and he went right through the windshield and had to get 30 stitches on his face. And after I saw him, I started wearing a seatbelt. Now, did Jim get any new information about the safety of wearing seatbelts? No. He didn't get any new information, but the information became new. He didn't get any new information, but the information became new. And similarly, as we uh, go through this series called Carols, It's very possible that uh, what you hear today and next week uh, regarding the Christmas story, you might not get any new information, but my hope is that this information becomes new and afresh on our hearts and our minds. And so today we're quite possibly taking a look at the oldest carol that has ever been written. Some think that it dates all the way back to 800 AD, which is why no one is quite sure who wrote the hymn. And it is a hymn called, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And so what I want to do through this song is sort of uh, baptize our imaginations and re-enchant our sort of disenchanted hearts. And the way that I want to do that is by teleporting us all into a thick forest. Imagine this room is a thick, thick forest, and all the chairs that we're sitting on are trees, And we all live in these magnificent, beautiful tree houses all the way up on the top of these trees. But then one day, a neighboring community comes in and they cut down all of our homes. They cut down all of our trees so that the only thing that is left of our tall trees are short stumps. And our whole forest is now just littered with hundreds upon thousands of just short stumps. And they set ablaze our home, our forest, on fire like the fires in California. But worse yet, they not only wreck our home, our forest, but they take us captivity, men, women, and children, and they exile us out 
to their own homeland. But in the midst of all the carnage and all the wreckage and all the destruction, in the midst of the smoke rising from the ashes, there's one stump in the middle of the forest. And this stump all of a sudden grows a flower. And this single flower represents life, it represents hope, and this flower represents that one day we will all be coming home. This is what Isaiah 11 is about. This is what the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is about. And so if you look at page 11 uh, of your bulletin, I just want to read for us the first verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. This song, this, this, this entire book of Isaiah is sort of written in the context of exile. And as many of you know, the adjectival form of the word exile is exilic. And in my opinion, if there's one singular word that best summarizes the entirety of the Christian life, I believe it is the word exilic. Uh, this past fall retreat, we were at the Princeton Marriott, and I got a yellow manila folder with all of our uh, room keys in it. And on the yellow manila folder, it said, Exotic Presbyterian Church. <laughs> <laughs> I've just about heard everything. I've heard, I've heard elixir. I've heard Excalibur, I've heard Xbox because of our colors. This is the first I've never heard exotic, which is sort of an oxymoron. So why did we choose the name? Well, we didn't, we didn't choose the name because we, th we thought it sounded cool or because it was so clear. If anything, it's caused a lot of confusion and hiccups, so why choose the name? I honestly believe, I honestly believe if there is one word that best summarizes holistically the entirety of the Christian life, I do believe it is the word exilic because on the one hand, it talks about the thorns and thistles of life. On the other hand, within this one word is a story that one day, even though we're not home, which is what it means to be in exile, one day we will be home. It's pessimistic, it's optimistic, it's bad news, and it's good news at the same time. And we see this theme of exile throughout all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis, Adam and Eve are exiled east of Eden. Uh, Abraham is a wanderer or vagabond. Moses and the Israelites are exiled out of Egypt into the wilderness and the desert for 40 years. If you want to understand what the bulk of the Old Testament is about, uh, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Esther, it's all about exile either to Egypt, Babylon, or Assyria. In the New Testament, Christians are referred to as aliens and strangers, sojourners and exiles. And Jesus is the ultimate exile from heaven down to earth. Furthermore, uh, uh, extra biblical sources like Pilgrim's Progress, which is one of the best-selling books uh, of all time, was written by a Puritan named John Bunyan, encapsulate the idea that we are all pilgrims on a journey somewhere. And so the Bible is written by wanderers, and it's written for wanderers. But make no mistake, the words of Gandalf are true. Not all who wander are lost. 
But what we see throughout the theme, uh, throughout, the, throughout the scriptures, is that from Genesis, as soon as Adam and Eve are exiled, humanity has been on a quest to find a home. Now, a house is different from a home. A house is four walls with a roof. A home is a place where you belong. It's a place where you find community. It's a place where you find family. It's a place where you experience rest and growth. So a house is different from a home, and it seems to me that a lot uh, that one of the main reasons why a lot of us experience the despair that we experience in life is because we all live in houses, but we don't necessarily have a home. And people need to always be connected to places where they belong. Uh, in his new book, Ben Sass talks about how sociologists have sort of boiled down the happiness equation to just four things. There are four things that will make us all happy. Number one, a nuclear family. Number two, a few deep friendships. Number three, a strong sense of vocation. And number four, a theology or worldview that is robust enough to help us handle the suffering and the death that we experience in life. And what Sass says that in his book is that three and a half out of the four things that were mentioned are all connected to places. So for example, your family is connected to your home. Uh, your vocation is connected to your workplace. Theology uh, or philosophy is connected to some kind of religious institution like the church. And even your friends are connected to school, work, or some kind of place. But what's been happening recently in our modern culture is a hollowing out of those four things. So for example, we had the deconstruction of the family or a tearing apart of the family. Because of uh, social isolation, we don't have the deep kind of friendships that we need. Because of technology, we can now work remotely from home or even get groceries without talking to a cashier person. And fourthly, because of the rise of secularism, we no longer now have a theology that is robust enough to handle suffering because the primary thing in life is all about being happy. And so what we're seeing today in our modern culture is a hollowing out of these four uh, things. And as a result of that, even though the life expectancy has skyrocketed over the past four years, did you know that within the past three years, the average life expectancy has actually been on the decline? Now, how is it that the average life expectancy is declining when we have all of this modern medicine and te uh, technology? Why isn't it inclining? The last time we ever saw two years in a row consecutively of the average life expectancy declining was in 1962 and 1963 when there was a massive flu epidemic. But today, most of us get our flu shots. So how do you explain the three consecutive years that we've experienced in our country where there is a a decline in the average life expectancy. Well, we now have a lot of mortality data. And what sociologists have discovered is that the reason why the average life expectancy is now decreasing is because of deaths of despair. Suicides, overdoses. Car accidents used to be number one for over 80 years in a row. Car accidents now are being outdistanced by deaths of despair. Car accidents now are number five on the list. Deaths of despair have now risen to the top. Social isolation and not having a home 
is literally killing us, which is why social isolation is twice as deadly as obesity, and it is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Despair is literally killing us, which is why it is all the more important that we as social beings have a place where we can call home. And I think one of the interesting things to me about the church in particular is that the church can cover all four of those things that equate to the happiness uh, equation. The church is a family. So that even if you don't have a nuclear family or your family is really, really dysfunctional, we are a family. We are called brothers and sisters in Christ and we have a heavenly father, even if you might not have an earthly father. We are a group of friends, which is why we do an awkward handshake in the middle of our services all the time so that we can connect with one another because friendships are born and they start with a handshake. Uh, this coming year, uh, New Year in 2019, we're going to start a ministry for faith and work to give us a stronger sense of vocation. And last but not least, almost every week, we talk about suffering and death to equip us when we handle that uninvited guest. This is one of the reasons why we take church membership so seriously, because we want the church to be a place where you belong. We don't want you to be just a casual visitor with no connection to us whatsoever. Membership is a way for you to be glued and to stick and to commit to the church because we are committed to you. We want this place to be a place where you can call home. If you take a look on the first page of your bulletin, I want to read you a tweet from Matt Merker. And Merker says, a church service is a gathering of exiles who belong to the same heavenly country. It is a political rally complete with national anthems, which are our hymns, a constitution, which is our preaching, a pledge of allegiance, which is our creeds, granting of passports, which is our baptism, and a national dish, which is the supper. So here is the point. Here is some theology then. What, is, what theology is there then that will help us sort of handle uh, the suffering and the despair that we experience in our lives today. Well, if you take a look at verse six, uh, six through nine in our passage, it says, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover uh, the seas. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was watching a, a nature clip, and I saw one lion being tack, attacked by 10 hyenas, and the lion was actually putting up a fight. Uh, but eventually it got tired and the hyenas slowly started killing the lion until another lion came to help the other lion and all of a sudden the hyenas sort of dispersed because apparently two lions are stronger than 10 hyenas. Now can you imagine for a moment that there's poor little Simba in the jungle just drinking water, 10 hyenas surround him, 
But instead of attacking little Simba, they actually start caressing him and hugging him. Hyenas. It's unthinkable, right? It's almost unimaginable. Now think about it this way. Imagine a wolf lying down with a lamb. Or imagine a little baby putting her hand or his hand in the, in the den of a cobra's den. It's unthinkable. It's unimaginable. Why? Because this is not the way that nature works. Uh, the central principle of nature is the strong eating the weak. Uh, it, the central principle of nature is violence. Uh, one author named Annie uh, Dillard lived in the creeks of uh, the mountains of Virginia to sort of connect with nature as an author. Uh, but what she quickly realizes is that because she was spending a year long with nature, instead of it sort of giving her life and inspiring her, it was slowly deconstructing her. And I want to read you a quote from uh, her book, Pilgrim, uh, Tinker Creek, um, on the first page of her bulletin. And this is what she writes after spending a year uh, uh, by the creeks in the mountains of Virginia. Evolution loves death more than it loves you or me. I had thought to live by the side of the creek in order to shape my life to its free flow, but I seem to have reached a point where I must draw the line. It looks as though the creek is not booing me up, but dragging me down. We value the individual supremely, and nature values him not a whit. There is not a people in the world who behaves as badly as praying mantises. But wait, you say, there's no right or wrong in nature. Right and wrong is a human concept. Precisely. We are moral creatures in an amoral world, a monstrous world running on chance and death, careening blindly from nowhere to nowhere, somehow produced wonderful us. This world runs on chance and death and power, but I cherish life and the rights of the weak versus the strong. I crawled out of a sea of amino acids, and now I must whirl around and shake my fist at that sea and cry uh, shame. And what Dillard is saying here is that there's sort of an inconsistency between the central principle of nature and sort of the moral compass that she has within her own heart that this is wrong. But how can nature be wrong if I'm a product of nature? Uh, if I'm just a grown-up germ, why do I feel the way that I do about justice and injustice? And so the question here then is this, is there any hope for us in the world that we live in when nature runs this way? Can we zig when nature zags? Uh, many of you know who uh, Elon Musk is, who is sort of a, a technological savior in many ways. And in a TED Talk, this is the last quote I want to read for you, uh, which I believe was a year or two ago. Uh, Musk says that, I think it's important to have a future that is inspiring and appealing. I just think that there have to be reasons that get you up in the morning and you want to live. Like, why do you want to live? What's the point? What inspires you? What do you love about the future? And if we're not out there, if the future does not include being out there among the stars and being a multi-planet species, I find that it's incredibly depressing if that's not the future that we're going to have. People are mistaken when they think technology just automatically improves. It does not automatically improve. But I want to be clear, I'm not trying to be anyone's savior. I'm just trying to think about the future and not be sad. And he's right, technology doesn't just automatically improve, and the future can look somewhat depressing. And so the question is this, if he's not our savior, who is? Is there someone that can rescue us in the midst of the despair that we experience uh, with the life uh, that we live here? 
the tune of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, in many ways, uh, is the opposite of Joy to the World, because Joy to the World is a very lively, cheery song. Uh, but if you've ever listened to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel before, it is a very somber, melancholic song. But if you go down to the chorus, there is a command in the midst of the melancholy, there is a command in the chorus to actually rejoice, to rejoice in the midst of the despair that we experience because of the hope that we have. Because as human beings, we are all hope-shaped creatures. What we think about tomorrow inevitably shapes how we live today. And so where is our hope? Or should I say, who is our hope? Well, if you take a look uh, at the second line, uh, uh, the first line of verse 2 of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, there's a very unusual line in verse 2, and it says, O Come, Thou Rod of Jesse, Free. Now, I want to talk about this line because we're going to sing it later on in our service. It's kind of important to know what we're singing about. Your average Jewish person, when they ever, whenever they heard the name Jesse, they would automatically know who Jesse was. Jesse was the father of King David. And King David was arguably the greatest king in Israelite history. And I find it interesting here that it says, O come thou rod of Jesse. A rod is like a branch of some sort. And what this verse is saying is that there needs to be someone else, because we've already had King David. There needs to be someone else from the line of Jesse that can save us, that can be better than King David, a greater King David that can rescue us. And if you take a look back at our passage, there is. In verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 11, it says that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, if you jump all the way down to the last verse in verse 10, this is what it says. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Now, if you compare verse 1 and verse uh, 10, it's conflicting because in verse 1, there's sort of this emphasis that there will be a branch with a capital B that will bear, bear fruit, that will be our hope, a branch. And then in verse 10, it talks about a root of Jesse that will sort of be our hope. Now, a root is not the same thing as a shoot or a branch. They're two different things, and so, which is why we have two different definitions in sort of this botanical language. But here, they seem to be the same, the root and the shoot. The root is the source of or origin of life, and the branch is sort of the, sort of stems from the root. And here, what Isaiah chapter 11 is actually talking about is that God is the stump, and from God, his only begotten son is none other than Jesus himself. And what's so interesting about Isaiah chapter 11 is that when you take a look at verse 1, the word branch in Hebrew is the word Nazar. The town of Nazareth is named after the word branch or Nazar. And when you take a look at the Gospels, what town is Jesus always identified with? He is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the saying back then was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because it was a little town, 150, 300 people at most. Uh, nothing good came out of small towns like that. Maybe Jerusalem, Athens, Rome, but nothing like Nazareth. And yet here, there's an emphasis, there's an emphasis on the word Nazar, and Jesus himself is from Nazareth. So here's a question. Why did the God of heaven become a child on earth. 
I want to take a look at O Come, O Come, Emmanuel once more at verse 3. And it explains it quite beautifully. In verse 3, it says, O come, thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. The word day spring is another way of saying sunrise. And whenever we see a sunrise, what does it do? It disperses the gloomy clouds by night. And for those of you who have battled seasons of depression before, which I know that many of us have, whenever you're depressed, what does it feel like? It feels like there's just a dark cloud that is following you literally wherever you go. And it's only following you, and it's only raining down on you. And so whenever someone is depressed, they sort of feel like they're in the pit of despair. And when someone is in the pit of despair, it is very difficult for them to reach out for help. And so the way to help someone that is in the pit of despair is instead of waiting for them to reach out, what we need to do is sort of climb down into their pit of despair, sit with them, live with them, suffer with them, and point them up, upward to a world, a better world that is out there. And that is precisely what Jesus did. This is the reason why the God of heaven became a child on earth. Instead of waiting for us to reach out for him, he climbs down into our world. He sits with us. He lives with us. In Isaiah 53, it actually talks about the root and shoot again. And it actually says that Jesus is a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And I love that. You know, there's, without a shadow of doubt, uh, all of us uh, will experience suffering east of Eden, living in exile. But I don't think I'm being hyperbolic when I do say that if there's one man that experienced more suffering than anyone ever has on earth in human history, it is Jesus himself. And it's not because he hung on a cross. You have to remember that there was another guy on his left and right that were equally hanging on a cross with him. In fact, Romans executed people this way all the time. It wasn't so much the physical pain that Jesus was suffering, although that in itself was very painful. But the suffering that Jesus experienced was so much more spiritual to a certain degree. Because when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's taking the judgment that you deserve, you deserve, you deserve, he, he deserves, she deserves, they deserve, and all of their judgment is falling on one man's shoulders. And like a sponge, he is soaking up the wrath of God that all of us deserve, the hell that all of us deserve on one man's shoulders he was judged in our place so that what we can experience is forgiveness and life. I like the way that Edwin Cologne put it, our, our fall retreat speaker, when he said, would you rather get hit by a truck or by a shadow of a truck? Rather get hit by a shadow of a truck. And on the cross, Jesus was hit by death for us so that we would only be hit by its shadows. But through his death, we will have victory over the grave. And one day, even death's dark shadow will be put to flight. And the more you think about what Jesus has done for us and how he understands our pain, has gone through the pain and the suffering that we experienced and actually bore our pain, and how he shows us that there is a world out there that is so much better, a world where a baby can put their hand in a cobra's den 
because this is always the way that the world was supposed to be, that one day everything wrong will be made right again, that in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. The more you remember that, the more hope-filled that we can become. The more you think about tomorrow, the more hope-filled we can become with today. Um, I want to close with one, uh, something that Charles Spurgeon once said in his devotionals. It's not in your bulletin, but I just want to read it for us and then we'll close. Spurgeon says, The Christian knows no change with regard to God. He himself may be rich today and poor tomorrow. He may be sickly today and well tomorrow. He may be in happiness today. Tomorrow he may be distressed, but there is never any change with regard to his relationship to God. If he loved me yesterday, then he loves me today. My unmoving mansion of rest is my blessed Lord. Let prospects be ruined. Let hopes be blasted. Let joy be withered. He is my strong habitation, whereunto I can continually resort. I am a pilgrim in the world, but at home in my God. In the earth I wander, but in God I dwell in quiet habitation. Let's pray together. Lord, sometimes uh, in life we feel like uh, water plants that are sort of floating in water with our roots dangling. Uh, but it is my prayer that we would root and anchor ourselves in you and in the church that you love so much that you died for her in the midst of her warts and scars and blemishes that you love. And it is my prayer that our church can be a home for fellow exiles and wanderers, for not all who wander are lost. In Jesus' name.